0: You're listening to Code Red with Secure America Now, the largest national security grassroots army.
1: Welcome to another Code Red broadcast. Today, we are very pleased to have with us Christian White, who's Senior Vice President of Banner Public Affairs. He has extensive experience in foreign affairs and security matters. He served in the United States State Department. He also served on the Donald Trump Transition Team as it pertained to the State Department. Uh, Christian is an expert in various areas, but in particular, we will discuss today North Korea, We'll also discuss Iran and probably China, but I would like to begin by asking Christian what he thinks about the new national security team that President Trump has appointed, and I'm glad to say just a few minutes ago um, that uh, former CIA director Pompeo has been officially... Put it into office as Secretary of State. He actually, the Senate voted to confirm him. And I would like to have your thoughts on this new team.
0: Well, thanks, Alan, and
1: it's great to be here
0: with you. Um, It seems like things are really coming together after uh, you know some some great wins, but also serious. Uh, challenges during the first Trump year now, especially with Pompeo, who, as you noted, was just confirmed by the Senate by a vote of 57. That's that's one more than we got for Rex. Still a very uh, frankly partisan vote. Uh, a lot of game playing going on up on Capitol Hill, but a win is a win is a win. And with Mike Pompeo, we have someone I think that shares the president's views. That's very skeptical about the Iran deal, which gave Iran so many goodies in rex- in exchange for a flawed nuclear agreement. Um, that shares the president skepticism for the Paris uh, climate uh, agreement Um, and frankly who is willing to negotiate as the president is with Kim Jong-un the North Korean dictator but does so with eyes wide open and who takes a fairly skeptical view of tyrants and those who challenge us so a national security team and this also extends to John Bolton at the National Security Council a national security team in search of real agreements on trade and security to make us safer not in search of Nobel Priests prize, peace prizes, or uh, steps that would please the European elite and the media elite here in the United States.
1: I agree. Um, I think that they both have um, experience, uh, and in addition, they also have the same worldview as the president, which is extremely important for the president to get his policies enacted uh... as we speak uh... the visit by the french president macron to the white house has come to an end and it has gotten quite a bit of news over the last couple of days here in washington uh... by all accounts macron came to change president trump's mind about the iran nuclear deal uh... this morning President Trump said in a radio interview that after conversations with President Macron, President Macron now understands why the president has, has deep concerns about the nuclear deal. What is your view of what transpired between the two presidents and um, the fate of the Iran nuclear deal?
0: I think the deal is, is pretty much dead. Uh, as you point out, um, you know, I think Macron thought he was going to come and lobby Donald Trump and may have found himself uh, instead being lobbied. You know There are limits also, I think. It's great, as the president wants to, to have a good relationship with the French president and, and to be on good terms with any number of foreign leaders, potentially including Russian President Putin, but there are limits to what France is willing to do, limits to what they can do. They did participate in the recent strike on Uh, the chemical weapons capability in Syria, but it was fairly limited. Nine airplanes, just one more than the Brits. Um, you know the the Europeans certainly would love to see an about face by the president on Iran to preserve this precious deal of theirs. But ultimately, uh, the deal doesn't make the world safer; it makes it less safe. It, it, it sanctifies the Russian excuse me the Iranian nuclear program. Uh, it sanctifies their ballistic missile development. Incidentally, some of their ballistic missile technology is currently being lobbed by the Houthis at Saudi Arabia, uh, and that could you know one day be being uh, nuclear tipped ballistic missiles targeting europe um, I think with Pompeo you have uh, you know, deep skepticism, there's the option for the Europeans to come back with a better Iran deal, I don't see Iran frankly accepting that, so I think we fast forward to a situation where we dispense with this fall, flawed agreement and get back to uh, having the ability to put serious sanctions and pressure on Tehran and using that as a deterrent. One other thing, and you alluded to this, we have um, you know, very strong rhetoric, and I think it's the good kind of rhetoric from the President, just saying that if Iran messes with us, if they use kinetic activities against the United States or allies, then they're going to be consequences, and not sort of the make-believe consequences from the Obama era, but real consequences.
1: The Europeans seem determined to do whatever they can to put the Iran nuclear deal on life support uh, to keep it alive. And um, following uh, Macron, I think today or tomorrow uh, comes the head of the German government, um, Angela Merkel. What do you see uh, her agenda being uh, in her conversations with President Trump, uh, and also on a uh, on a more personal note? Uh, the president seems to really enjoy being with Macron, Uh, and uh, is this uh, an indicator of perhaps a split within the European community, uh, where Germany has been the lead European country for several decades? I think you are. Right. It's
0: amazing change from the situation a decade ago, where France was organizing uh, a coalition against the United States, not just objecting to what the United States wanted to do to Saddam Hussein, but actually rallying people against us, uh, which was very frankly unacceptable conduct from a NATO ally. To one where the situation, the atmospherics are much better. And again, when it, when you look for people who can do things in the world, France, um, you know, certainly doesn't have any. Like the capabilities we have, but certainly its capabilities are greater than Germany. And also, I think in France we see some political stirrings um, that maybe, just maybe, Western Europe hasn't quite thrown in the towel on history and on civilization just yet. Uh, certainly, the, the clearest manifestation of that is Brexit and the rejection of um, rule from Brussels. Uh, and, you know, with France, we certainly have plenty of common interests in whether it's thwarting Iran or um, handling uh, Islamism. You know, uh, President Trump, before he was president, said that Angela Merkel was basically the woman who ruined Europe. And I, frankly, I think there's a lot to that. She has done a little bit of an about face, but after all, she is in a coalition with socialists. I believe her foreign minister is a socialist. So she'll be here. I'm sure the trappings will be outwardly really nice. She'll get to meet our new, brand new U.S. ambassador to Germany, who was just co- uh, confirmed a few minutes after Pompeo. Uh, that will be Rick Rene- who is a protege of John Bolton, um, and, you know, I think the ball will be in Germany's court to show that it can be helpful to some of these challenges that the West faces in, uh, in you know, in, in the current time, because so far they, they haven't been very useful. In fact, they've been creating problems.
1: You have quite a bit of experience in dealing with uh, the North Korean set of issues human rights issues, nuclear issues uh, with North Korea. Uh, I would like to get your uh, opinion of what you think can come out of talks between this administration or the president himself and the head of North Korea. And just to preface it by saying that this morning in this uh, interview that the president did, he made it clear that there might be, like in any deal, no opportunity to come to an agreement, which reminded me of uh, Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev and their famous um, summit or meeting in uh, during... The end of the Soviet Union phase and in uh, Reykjavik, and President Reagan actually walked away when there was no deal to be had, which I think is a positive thing. Um, can you put on your, your your genie hat and look into the crystal ball and tell me what do you think? might come out of this deal and what should the United States be pushing for?
0: All right, I think you're, 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 again, very apt to make that historical analogy to Reagan um, and, and walking away from uh, what seemed like a dream come true for the the, priest, the high priesthood of arms control here in Washington. Uh, Gorbachev effectively in 1986 offering to give up much or most or almost all of the Soviet Union's nuclear capability in return for the United States giving up on ballistic missile defense um, and Ronald Reagan uh, refusing to do that and everyone thought oh my god what did he do but lo and behold just uh, a year or two later it was able to reach an agreement with the soviets the intermediate nuclear forces agreement which had eliminated an entire class of nuclear weapons intermediate range nuclear missiles uh, a lot of work went into that including earlier in the reagan administration a much tougher posture toward the soviet union including putting Pershing missiles, uh, intermediate-range nuclear missiles, into Europe. They went into the United Kingdom, uh, Italy, and I believe Germany. Uh, And essentially what Reagan did in the first part of his administration is put more chips on his side of the table that could then be negotiated. Now, an analogy with the Trump administration is the president has spent uh, his first year and a half in office driving a much tougher bargain on trade and defense than his predecessors did. Um, he has increased military spending and, you know, that has been noticed and that in, in gives him more power. And then with North Korea, he has repeatedly said, um, both in planning for the summit and then at the summit, assuming it comes together in June, that he's willing to walk away. And again, that is the key difference between Trump's approach to North Korea and the one we saw in the George Bush, W. Bush administration and the Bill Clinton administration. Under Clinton and Bush, we were showering North Korea with goodies even before they showed up at the negotiating table. They said they would uh, you know, agree to a basically nuclear-free Korean peninsula. They took the goodies, whether it was food aid or energy assistance, all of which can be converted into cash for the regime, uh, or sanctions relief, and then they never delivered the goods. With Trump, again, he's not hunting for a Nobel Peace Prize. He's not trying to please the crew up at the Harvard Kennedy School, or at Johns Hopkins, or in the Council of Foreign Relations. Uh, and so uh, you know, that willingness to walk away, and this is something I think almost every American who's ever bought a car or had to negotiate knows. Uh, if, if the person you're negotiating against knows you have to make a deal, then they're going to come out ahead. If instead they think or know that you're going to walk away from a bad deal. It's going to be a much better negotiation. So as far as what may come from it, I don't think we'll ever get to a completely denuclearized Korean peninsula because that regime knows it can't really give up its nuclear weapons entirely. But some sort of dismantlement, an end to testing, which is already uh, temporarily put in place, um, you know, maybe a, an accounting of nuclear warheads and nuclear material, and also a, a strong verification mechanism. And it's good that we have John Bolton as National Security Advisor because he was the senior most verification and arms control person at the State Department before he went to be George Bush's uh, ambassador to the United Nations.
1: You are uh, you you mentioned earlier about the Iran deal and. I'd like uh, today uh, the Chief Ayatollah Khomeini called on the Muslim world to rise up against the United States because of words uttered by the President of the United States. Do you see Iran as being open to any sort of Compromise on their positions, whether it's on the nuclear issue or on the issue of the, they're expanding their sphere of influence throughout the Middle East.
0: I don't think they're there yet, frankly, I think they need to feel some more political pain uh, The weakness is all the the ingredients are there if you look at it and we've seen we saw this um uh the in the early Obama years and then again earlier this year with Iranians spontaneously taking to the streets and protesting their own regime and also at times specifically complaining about their regime's adventures. Against Israel, whether in Gaza or in Lebanon with uh, Hezbollah, so the problem is is that Saudi Arabia is fighting a proxy war against Iran uh, in Yemen. It, proxy wars are better if you actually win them, and, and and you know I think the Saudi Emirati alliance is slowly um, turning the tide there, um, but. Uh, you know Until ideally Iran can feel a little more pain be boxed in, and also I think it takes dictatorial regimes a little time to figure out that the world has changed and that American resolve is real um it might take for example the re-election of donald trump especially given all of the fake uh, negative media he gets from the u.s media which spreads around the world that they may hope that that america's newfound willingness to stand with israel to stand up against the iranian regime might just be transient or might just be a flash in the pan and that pretty soon they can get back to america putting plane loads of cash uh, into the sky at night going to Tehran, which, of course, is what John uh, Kerry and President Obama did. So um, I think the ingredients are there, but just not really um, the the real uh, sense that Tehran has to make a deal. It's going to take a little more work and time.
1: President Trump today alluded in that interview to the cash being uh, at the dead of night being sent over to Tehran as he was making his case as to why this was such a bad deal, meaning the Iran nuclear deal. you mentioned uh, about people, Iranians in the streets, and when you go into the streets in Iran, you're risking your life and uh, as you protest the regime. And it reminds me of a book that you wrote, the extremely important book, which I hope gets a wide audience to read it, called Smart Power Between Diplomacy and War. You make the case that America has, in the past, actually fought wars without shooting a shot and it helped us win wars like the Cold War and that we should be doing more of that today. Can you um, explain what smart power is and how should we be deploying it? And if you want to use an example, uh, Iran's a good example. What would you do in terms of Iran if you had the power to do it?
0: Well, smart power means uh, different things to different people. Uh, Hillary Clinton, unfortunately, attempted to co-opt the term into sort of a window-dressing cover for doing nothing. For instance, in North Korea, she did nothing. She invented this concept called strategic patience that meant basically standing by why North Korea perfected its ability to make nuclear warheads and and ICBMs. What it really means is sort of a big part of statecraft between the softest of diplomacy, uh, for example, sitting down with diplomats and drinking tea, and the most extreme of hard power which is killing people and in the debate over any given foreign policy issue in Washington there's usually this this false binary choice of oh well you know we have to do diplomacy because what's the alternative going to war or that the only, or often the only soft power tool, tool that's mentioned is sanctions and in fact if you will go back and look at what we've done throughout our history uh, it just isn't so when I started working on North Korea, and this was North Korean human rights, and and President Bush hated Kim Jong il, the current dictator's father, hated the way he treated his own people and hated the way he was causing problems for our allies, South Korea and Japan. And we went and talked to people who had been dissidents behind the Iron Curtain, inside the Soviet bloc, Uh, you know Natan Sharansky had a book out at the time, The Case for Democracy and we uh, spoke with other people who had studied what went on and they said, you know, information from the outside, ideas from the outside, in the case of Sharansky when Ronald Reagan said uh, when he called communism evil and said that history would consign it to the ash heap of his, and Sharansky was in a prison in the Soviet Union at the time, um, and just communicating with other prisoners, often through drained toilets or by tapping on prison walls, it gave them a huge shot in the dark. For the first time, a Western leader had spoken the truth, the truth that they all suspected, um, but, you know, hadn't really been verbalized from the outside. So, you know, I think we forget in the United States that our power is not infinite, but Pumping information, factual information, into repressive societies. presidents standing up unequivocally for those uh, who are fighting for freedom, as Donald Trump did with the protesters in Iran, unlike his predecessor Obama, um, and uh, taking other economic steps. Really, what we used to call political warfare, nonviolent political warfare. That's what we should do. Now, with Iran, what you specifically could do, um, you know, information. It's not quite like North Korea, where there's total. Censorship, or like China, where they, um, uh, you know, have erected a, an immense censorship uh, apparatus directed at the internet. Um, but just taking steps to uh, be clear that we think that that regime is on borrowed time. That Islamism, which uh, you know we see manifested by Sunni jihadists a lot of places, actually was really pioneered. The theocratic tyranny that they want was pioneered by Shiites in Iran, still in place since 1979. Uh, um, so a combination of diplomatic uh, pressure of clarity from Western leaders about how this regime is evil, and if we you know can cut a deal on on, on nuclear arms, okay, but ultimately that doesn't mean we need to defend that regime from their own people, economic steps uh, and, and and other pressure like that. and also even if you're stopping short of going to war, what you do with military posture really matters. Um, Making sure we have the Navy and the Air Force and other capabilities necessary um, to fight Iran if we need to. That's the sort of peace through strength thing that Ronald Reagan advocated and, and that also Donald Trump believes in. Those are the types of smart power things you can use to shape political outcomes without going to war.
1: Today, President Trump said that he once again reiterated that if Iran took actions against the United States, they would live to regret it. And he also noted that unlike during the Obama administration, we don't see Iranian boats harassing American warships because they realize that he means it when he says he will do something. So that posturing actually sends an important message. Uh, Shifting just a little bit, uh, can you share with us your thoughts about Syria and what it is that you think the United States should do? Yes, I, I
0: think that basically we should look to shift our operations uh, out of the country, um, given that we are very close and substantially have achieved our goal for for going in, at least the one that President Trump articulated, which is the defeat of ISIS. Uh, of course there's a war going on. It's been going on for seven years. It's the Syrian civil war between um, the incumbent government and its dictator Assad and a number of, of rebels. You know There are a number of people here in Washington who would love to basically do Iraq all over again. In fact, just today, in the national interest, I suspect they published it as sort of a dissenting view from, from their realist worldview. You have Danny Pletka from the Neoconservative American Enterprise Institute uh, and General Keene arguing for uh, getting involved on multiple fronts in Syria. So that would have us bogged down in a quagmire where we're supposedly fighting for good guys. Incidentally, Senator John McCain went out once to meet with some of these good guys, took pictures with them, and it turned out some were part of al-Qaeda. Um, I think that uh, Syria is, <laughs> is is a very um, unclear, multifaceted Situation where we should pay close attention and certainly work with political allies, um, but uh, dispense with the idea that we are going to or should turn the place into Beverly Hills. We went in to get ISIS. I think we've gotten them, um, and you know our resources are not infinite. Uh, and if we are spending billions and billions of dollars in operations in Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan every year. That's money that cannot be spent on new ships, airplanes, satellites, missiles, data systems that can be used to deter China, which at the end of the day is is sort of the one country that can end the United States of America or really, really beat us. There are serious threats from Iran, uh, including to our allies in the Middle East. There are threats from from Russia. But the 800-pound gorilla in the room is China. uh, And I really would hate to see us get involved in the wrong war with the wrong enemy at the wrong time, fighting a secularist assad in Syria when we should be preparing and therefore deterring war with these other
1: actors What do you think of the president's decision to move the United States embassy in Israel to Jerusalem? Well, this is a fantastic
0: and, and overdue and very important move uh you know, Israel is sort of unique, um, Taiwan may be in this boat too, but unique in that it was held and uh, continues to be held elsewhere in the world as a second-class citizen. Uh, every country in the world decides where its capital is. Uh, everyone knows that the capital of Israel is Jerusalem. Uh, their government is seated there. Um, and Congress, since the late 1990s, has passed legislation requiring the U.S. Embassy be located in Israel's capital, Donald Trump has finally taken that step. And I think it's just a moment of moral clarity that we are going to stop jumping through ridiculous hoops uh, in search of a peace agreement with Palestinians who are represented by theocratic thugs who have absolutely no interest in in making a peace deal with Israel or with the rest of the world. Uh, And instead what we're going to do is recognize reality, stand with our, our allies. Um, I think the only shame in the situation is that Europe hasn't followed. I think eventually they will. We ought to be putting pressure on them for that. And also, it's just a reminder that so many Middle East experts aren't really that expert about their topic. Uh, the conventional wisdom was that if we ever moved the embassy to Jerusalem, that the so-called Arab street would erupt in violence. And sure enough, bef- right before the President made this decision, a string of, of leaders from the Middle East, including the usual suspects, the Jordanians, the Turks, came through and said that this would you know be cataclysmic uh, and absent a, a very small number of protests a, and despite an intense effort by the mainstream media to find protesters, there really wasn't that much objection. And behind closed doors, Arab governments don't really care all that much. Um, so it's a symbolic move, but a very important one. That I think it's is as with the climate change uh, Paris Pact, as with the Iran deal. Um, you know, we still need to work out solutions and policies. But you know, like Cortez burning his ships to focus the minds of his men, Donald Trump just index, irreversibly slamming the door on some of these terrible ideas from the Bush-Obama years uh, is important, and I think this is one of them.
1: About an hour ago, a news story flashed across my screen, and I'd like you to comment on it. uh, The headline reads, China assigns every citizen a social credit score to identify who is and isn't trustworthy. Country determines your standing through use of surveillance video. Plans to have 600 million cameras by 2020. I have to say, before, um, before you comment on it, I have to say that this one took Orwellian predictions and made them real in a way that we haven't seen in a long time. And secondly, it also showed that the hope and the prediction that social media and the Internet would be used to free the world uh, seems to be going in the other direction. Um, Anyway, your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I share that view,
1: and it was Bill Clinton who
0: famously, uh, and perhaps infamously, said that, uh, "How can you censor the internet? That, that would be like nailing Jello to the wall." Well, the Chinese figured out how to do that, and they did so, unfortunately, with the help from our liberal friends in Silicon Valley. I should say progressive friends; they're not particularly liberal. Um, you know, Tim Cook was at the state dinner. When Macron came to the White House, which sort of surprised me at first, since he's been very critical of of this administration and of President Trump, and recently criticized his own country, the United States, on trade while he was in China. Uh, And just another digression on Apple, you know, that's a company that would not help the police unlock a terrorist cell phone after the San Bernardino jihadist attack. Uh, but would help China censor the internet using Apple technology, and um, and basically allowing China to police parts of the cloud that China controls by hosting them in China. Um, you know, if you look at uh, step back and, and look at China and the United States. China today, it's basically the latest form of tyranny to challenge the American model. Uh, throughout our history, starting with the idea of an absolute monarchy versus our type of republic, you've had uh, instances of uh, every form of tyranny basically come up against the American model and fail. And most recently, it was Soviet-style communism that failed. We're also in a fight now with theocracy, Islamist theocracy, and uh, assuming we, we continue as, as we have begun in the last year and a half, I think that, too, will, will fail. And the question is whether China has, in fact, invented a perfect form of tyranny that will work, a perfect form of economic cronyism and technology-driven censorship uh, that will enable the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, to rule forever uh, and beat sort of uh, American-style uh, freedom. I mean, and they, of course, are, are very aggressive in stealing technology, um, thought in some ways to be ahead in the digital arms race, if you will. You know, uh, I think that will eventually run up against reality and, and the historical trends and the innovation of the United States, um, and that we will win. Um, China also has increased in many ways the risks it faces you know, with Xi Jinping, the leader, crowning himself as paramount leader, effectively doing away with term limits and sidelining all of his rival factions within the CCP. And those factions, even though they didn't say this, used to be considered a good thing, that there were competing power centers within the Chinese Communist Party party. Um, what she has done is basically taken all of those rival factions, which beneath each would be hundreds or perhaps hundreds of thousands of people, uh, and wrecked them. Uh, And so in the short term, he may have made himself powerful. But in the long term, I think he's increasing the pressure and likelihood for a catastrophic political collapse in China, which incidentally throughout history is something you see every several decades there. And they're, I think, in many ways overdue. So it is appalling. It is Orwellian. I think it's disappointing that Silicon Valley um, is probably involved, whether wittingly or unwittingly, in China censorship. Um, But my hope is that the tide is turning and that um, we and our allies are finally getting serious about defense posture and uh, trade, i.e. not trading or not giving our primary adversary in the world all of these goodies um, via favorable trade. So, um, you know, the, the jury remains out and there are some stark things going on, but hopefully the tide is turning.
1: Well, thank you, Christian, for sharing your informed views on a whole bunch of issues. Uh, I look forward to you returning to our podcast sometime in the near future. Meanwhile, uh, to our listeners, keep your eye out. Uh, Christian is a very popular guest on Fox Business, and other Fox shows. He also writes on uh, Fox's website and other publications. And I always, I think it's. What is your website? Is it whiten.com?
0: That's right. Just my last name, W-H-I-T-O-N.com. Just a list of uh, of appearances and and uh, publications.
1: Fantastic. Well, anyway. Uh, Thank you very much, uh, and thank you for all you've done for this country and for your continued relationship with Secure America Now. And we value you as friend, and uh, uh, we look forward to... Um, riding the Trump wave until uh, making America great again.
0: Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you, Alan, and great to be here. And thanks also to you and your colleagues at Secure America Now for all of the great things you've done for your, your country. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Code Red with Secure America Now. We are the largest national security digital platform in the nation, dedicated to bringing critical security issues to the forefront of the American debate. For more information, visit our website at www.secureamericanow.org.